we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Harvey Risch, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. Today, we're continuing our weekly series with various interesting and informed people. We usually talk about science and COVID topics, but that is really only a starting point. And if listeners have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com pulse, forward slash pulse. I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. Heather Gessling, who's an actively practicing physician, board certified in family medicine. Dr. Gessling is the owner of Gessling Family Wellness in Macon, Missouri, which has a Google reviews rating of 4.95 out of five, which is amazing. And she's also the chief operating officer of the medical team for the wellness company in which I'm also on the chief medical board. So Heather, let's begin. What have you been thinking about lately? Hi, Harvey. Glad to be on. I also want to say for your listeners, I recently just opened up uh, a practice in Boonville, Missouri as well. So I have another location. It's all under the same um, information, the same phone number, but I do have a second location. Um, So uh, I we were just talking before we got on the call about um, the interesting topic of copper and how you know copper supplementation really needs to be discussed and a safe version safe form of it needs to be ensured when we're recommending this to patients and the the email groups that we're in together you were discussing this amongst the other physicians and i was just telling you how impressed i was with the with the the thought process and making sure that we get that right well uh, as we we're saying copper is is a, a subtle nutrient And because it comes in two different states, it comes in one with a plus two charge valence and one with a plus three. And the evidence, such as it is, suggests that the plus two, which is the more natural form, is good for you. And the plus three, which is the more mineral form, is not. It can actually be harmful or increase risks of of dementia or other things. And unfortunately, the, the supplements that copper comes in when you go to buy them in, in the store is generally the mineral form, the, the, the plus three form, which is not beneficial. And uh, the copper that one normally ingests comes through eating foods, meat in particular, which is the plus two form, and that's good for you. So there's always intricacies in dealing with any of this stuff. And as um, the physicist Richard Feynman said in his essay on cargo called Science, you only know what you're doing when you really understand everything down to the deepest level. And everything that you think you know is only a theory until you've proved it to yourself. And it requires the evidence and not just the theory in order to, to know where you're going with it. And I think, as you've said many times, we have these back and forth discussions for the, the, the wellness company on establishing supplements and I'm the supplement skeptic among the crew mm-hmm. because uh, as much as I love the theories about how these things work and there are zillions of, of these l- published lab studies and cell studies and culture studies and all this stuff of, about and animal studies uh, about supplements and the whole thousands of, of them. Um, I'm an epidemiologist because I don't believe it until I see how it works in people 
you know, in, in a population scale and numbers of people. And so I withhold judgment, so to speak. I, I stay the skeptic until I actually see what's going on in people. And then I'll draw my conclusions. Probably everybody else has figured it out already. And I'm the last one on the block to, to be able to, to figure it out. Well, well, we need all kinds. We need all kinds to be able to talk through and have the proper discourse among each other and among our peers. Um, so tell me what, what you've heard about copper pipes then, water coming through copper pipes. Well, copper pipes is mineral copper. It's elemental metal copper, which leaches out into the water. Uh, it, when the water is, is stagnant in the pipe, the copper will, will slowly leach into the water. And it's the plus three, the bad kind, because it's the elemental mineral kind. And so the recommendation is that if you live in a house with copper pipes, if you're going to drink the house water, then run the water a bit first to get to draw in the outside water and dr drink that rather than mm -hmm. the, the water that's been sitting in your pipes. Been sitting in the pipes. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. That's that's so interesting, you know, to get be able to get down to the nitty gritty. So if we're talking supplements, what is your what is what are your thoughts on getting the research to prove all the different, you know, um, effectiveness in humans? Who's going to pay for those studies? Well, that is a big problem because these um, supplements are more or less generic. Yeah. That that there is no patent there, and you can't charge a hundred dollars for vitamin D and right. a bottle of vitamin D. So no, or a thousand dollars. So so nobody is going to mount the evidence to do that, except for some um, academics who are silly enough to think that they have a basic science science interest in whether these things do anything or not. Now mm. that having been said. There is still empirical evidence, even if it's not randomized controlled trials. And you know that I've written um, all of my broadsides against relying on randomized controlled trials for the only form of medical evidence. Correct. That that uh, randomized trials can be good, but they can also be bad and, and, and biased, just like observational studies. And so one needs to synthesize all of the evidence. And for that reason... I think that one can use evidence from other kinds of studies, like observational studies. Mm -hmm. that one can do a case control study perfectly well and ask people about their supplement use. And mm -hmm. to the degree that people use supplements regularly for long periods of time, one can capture that information. In fact, I've done those kinds of dietary studies for cancer studies that I've been interested in for years. And we have set kinds of questionnaires that we ask people to describe, you know, do you regularly use vitamin C? I mean, I mean, you might not get the dose so much, but but the the regular usage of something versus not ever regularly using it is so much more informative than worrying about do they use 500 milligrams a day or a thousand milligrams a day. That's very secondary, and mm -hmm. so you can ask about vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin E, multivitamins, other common things, and people have who who use these regularly will tell you pretty well and so you can get some information about the usage and correlate that with outcomes like cancers that we're interested in and so on and in my case i was interested in vitamin c and stomach cancer for some biological mechanisms related to um oh, yeah. processed meats and stomach cancer and so there there's plenty of ways of studying this if you just 
relax your strictness about how you really understand scientific evidence and then accrue everything that you can. You don't necessarily have to expect to be making money out of doing science that if you want for me i wanted to understand cancer etiology and so i'm willing to entertain all these other things yeah as etiologic factors and and diet and vitamins are just part of the whole things that we ask people about so Mm -hmm. it isn't quite as bad as one thinks of during medication use for covid say or whatever where generic medications don't get trial don't get tested and patent medications do, and then those those randomized trials get get fudged and corrupted and so on yes. to represent that they actually show something. Yeah, it's not that bad. Science actually does go on when there's a, a bit less of a profit motive staring everybody in the face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can see that it could be easy, you know, observational data uh, on on um, levels. If, if somebody's deficient and you supplement them and their levels go up, you know, but on some of these other more sort of esoteric or some, some other uses for supplements, it would be much harder to measure or, you know, test to see it, if it's actually it's true. What we're... It's true. But, you know, for example, we test all sorts of interesting things in, in and I've been doing studies of pancreatic cancer and, we got blood samples from everybody in the study and we know whether they've had their cancer removed or not at the time when, when we did the blood sampling and mm-hmm. we do uh, immunoassays and ELISA assays for me- measuring various things in the blood and hormones in the blood and, and so because of intellectual reasons for wanting to study this kind of cancer you can measure almost anything that you're interested in and the same could be true would be true if i were for example if I had thought to measure vitamin D levels when I did the study, then yeah. I would have measured vitamin D levels to see how they relate to to cancer incidence. It, I could because have done it because we've been possible. told that they do. We've been told that you know if you have a a good healthy vitamin D level, you have a fifty percent less chance of cancer, approximately around that number, less chance of cancer. Well, you um, might be right. I've got, I still have frozen blood samples. I could still test. Them there you go. The <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's you a new study. Yes. <laughs> Very good. So we were also taught, so vitamin D is something that's important in the pandemic era because of its immune benefits, immune system benefits that for whatever reason, low vitamin D has been empirically associated with bad outcomes in respiratory virus infections. And it levels below 20 are what we're calling low levels, bad bad levels. Over 50 seem to be good. 50 to 75 uh, seems to be the sweet spot for for vitamin D. Uh, and maybe over 100 is too much. I don't know. But but I think that most people don't even need to have them measured themselves measured. That if people take 4,000 to 5,000 units of vitamin D a day, depending on yep. body weight, they're in the ballpark, right? That's it. This is exactly how I practice it in, in, um, with my patients is I tell them, you know, we can check it. We can see where you're at, you know, for kicks and grins, we can see if you're low, but 
probably if you just take four to 5,000, you're going to be in the 50, 55 or 60 range. This is, this is the corresponding values that I've seen in my clinics where if you take about 5,000, you run about 50. If you take 10,000, you run about 100. This is a loose corresponding, corresponding number. And so, you know, a lot of patients do want to just know. Um, and so sometimes we do go ahead and check, but many aren't interested in, in having the procedure of getting a lab done. And so we, we don't, we don't necessarily check it. We just, we just do 5,000. I do 5,000 of D3 recommendation with 100 to 200 of K2. I see. So I would just, you know, check off another box on their, their annual physical form for another, if they're already doing lab tests, just to, to add exactly. to something like that. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. So K2 is, is interesting because I had always thought that there was only one vitamin K and, and that it was needed for clotting and that I got it up if I ate lettuce, which I didn't do every day and started to worry about it, et cetera. But now I understand <laughs> that that's K1 and K2 is different and mm -hmm. uh, it's it's twin, evil twin or good twin. I don't know. So. Yeah. <laughs> good twin is, yeah, you got to make sure you got to have we talked about the vitamin K2? So vitamin K2 is crucial um, to take with D3 because if you don't, your uh, calcium, the increased calcium absorption is potentially going to cause increased calcium deposition in plaque, which is not good. You want to get that calcium and drive it into the bone. And that's what I uh, recommend doing the, uh, taking the K2 for is to, uh, to increase bone density um, through the calcium absorption and reduce plaque um, buildup. Um, which is what happens if you don't take the vitamin K2 when you're doing D3, because if you're doing D3, you're going to have increased calcium absorption. You want that calcium to go into the right place. So that's what the vitamin K2 is, is for. And it's a magical, it's a, it's really a magical, I, I tell my patients, it's my magic vitamin. It's, it just does so many good things, strengthens your bone and can, and can potentially help reduce cardiovascular plaque. Uh huh. And so that applies even to menopausal women, postmenopausal women who are on estrogen replacement. Correct. Yeah. Just if you're taking D3, you got to pair it. Mm -hmm. It's usually a one to one ratio. So if you are on um, 100 micrograms of D3, which corresponds to about 4,000 units, um, then you need about 100 micrograms of vitamin K2. Uh huh. What do you think about vitamin C as opposed to vitamin D? Vitamin D's got a lot of good empirical evidence for hospitalization mortality risks by level of, of D in the middle of, of, of having respiratory infections. But I haven't seen as substantial an evidence base for vitamin C, only that Linus Pauling extolled it way back when. Yeah, well, so we know that vitamin C, from what I have learned and from what I've read, is really just sort of like a super... Um, antitoxin, it, it can help neutralize toxins. We know that um, with COVID, you have, uh, you have the virus running around, you probably have spike floating around. And, and so it can help neutralize that. Um, but also, it, it does seem to help in almost any type of infection, we know that it can help in sepsis. And, but, but you're right. I mean, there is controversy about vitamin C, whether or not it really is what it, we, we think it is. And, um, and you have to um, be careful because there are medical conditions that can be affected 
Um, renal stones. I know that it can increase renal stones, although I haven't seen that really play out in my practice it's over the last few years where I've prescribed a heck of a lot of, or advised a heck of a lot of vitamin C usage. I haven't seen patients coming in with renal stones. It just hasn't happened. Well, that's so, good to know. Yeah. I mean, my anxiety also extended to peanuts, which have uh, oxalic acid that also predisposes to renal stones. But once I got a, a ah. bill of health, I decided after my kidney stone, I decided I could eat peanuts again. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's something I hadn't heard. That's good to know. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to remember that. Peanuts, uh, are, peanuts are just not good for many reasons. <laughs> well, they're good. They're just high calorie, high fat or something like yeah. that. You know, I mean, we could talk about all those seed oils and, and that, but maybe that's for another topic, another time. Oh, but to just really quick, if you're using seed oils, stop. You got to quit using canola, corn, soy. The, the vegetable oils are so toxic, so toxic. You got to use all real stuff. You got to use butter, ghee, lard, avocado oil. Those, we like avocado and olive. Avocado and olive, yeah, yeah. But, but cooking, you know, can be avocado is a little better for cooking, I think. But they're, yes. they're both strongly flavored, and um, I have to like the flavors, but but it affects your your recipes. It does affect the taste a bit. My favorite is just butter. We go through butter, real grass-fed beef butter. We go through that like it's candy in our house. My husband oh. makes fun of me and my son for how much butter we use. He says instead of a butter dish, we should get a, a cake dish with a lid <laughs> and have it out on the counter because we use so much butter. I see. You're having butter for the main dish tonight? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a little butter with my steak. No, a little steak with my butter. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but it, it's interesting. <laughs> um, well, we're approaching a commercial break, so we're going to be back shortly. Please, everybody, stay tuned. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Heather Gessler. We were just discussing whether one should be eating butter or seed oils, and we're voting for the former, not the latter. 
in general, although I still have some anxiety thinking about that, but because living a lifetime of modern diet and, and probably unsaturated fat and all of uh, those considerations, you know, it used to be- I was just, yeah, I was just telling a patient today, you know, the hardest patients for me to convince on what to eat, eating the real food, butter, not seed oil, are those that have been under the care of a cardiologist. They have true anxiety. You know, they've been indoctrinated to eat this low fat fake food and they think that's better for them. Well, where's the Mediterranean diet fit into this? Well, I think, you know, I, I think that the Mediterranean diet is, is one of the better ones. I, I have been a big fan lately of carnivore because I've seen it do miracles in my patients, miracles. I mean, I have patients that come in and they're on mealtime insulin and long acting insulin and and I tell them to go straight carnivore. And I had a patient come in last month who was essentially a very new patient to me. I'd only, he'd only been in my practice a few months and he had already worked his way off of all mealtime insulin and had reduced his um, long acting insulin to a very, very small dose. And his numbers were amazing. His blood sugar numbers were amazing. He felt good. He had lost a lot of weight. Um, and so this is what I'm doing for patients. It helps with, it helps with, um, uh, joint pain, arthritis pain. It helps with plantar fasciitis. It helps with fatigue. It helps with brain fog. Um, the Mediterranean diet is, is a, a sensible diet. And I feel like if you're in good metabolic health already, where you're not diabetic, you're not obese, then I feel like the Mediterranean diet is, is fine. But if you have a lot of chronic disease, you're obese and you are on, you know, multiple um, medications for diabetes or cholesterol or high blood pressure, then the carnivore diet is what I recommend to heal your body and lose that weight and stabilize that metabolic syndrome and reverse it. And then maybe something more sensible like a Mediterranean diet can be used as as sort of a maintenance diet. So the Mediterranean diet includes pasta, semolina, flour, um, mm -hmm. as well as vegetables, fish, and meat. Um, not a lot of cereal grains. And no. um, the, the carnivore diet, I assume, just gets rid of uh, cereal grains and, and, and nuts and seeds. Yeah, it's basically meat, eggs, and cheese. So a, a small amount of vegetables. There is a, a YouTube um uh, there is a, a physician on YouTube, Dr. Paul Saladino, who talks about the the healthy fruits and vegetables that you can have in in addition to the meat, eggs, and cheese of the carnivore diet. Um, vegetables in general, um, we've we've all, we've thought vegetables are good. Um, we've thought that you know you should eat the the skin of your potatoes and that kale is good and spinach is good and a lot of these things are lies. We have not been told the truth about really what's in those plants. And so- Oh, you mean the spinach lobby has been working- Exactly. We, prop, propaganda from way back, from the Popeye years of eat your spinach. <laughs> well, spinach also has oxalic acid in it, which worried me about uh, kidney stones also. So I've done my homework. There you go. Back to the <laughs> kidney stones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I kind of assumed that most leafy vegetables were good for minerals and for bulk, for, for fiber. Um, yeah. So we've also been learning lately. There's been a lot of things coming out about how fiber actually is not so great for your intestines. It's, it's kind of um, inflammatory. It's, it's rough on your intestines and all that, you know, I send a patient to a, um, 
a GI specialist to get a, you know, a colonoscopy or endoscopy. And without fail, it's recommended they go on a high fiber diet and a proton pump inhibitor. Probably both of those recommendations are not so good. Proton pump inhibitors are very, very um, harmful and create chronic disease. I mean, they decrease nutrient uh, absorption and, and create deficiencies. And then this high fiber diet is probably not so good either inflammatory. So in general, it's like you got to question everything we've been told over the last several decades. I know. But, you know, I think that the, the question everything rationale occurs because so there's lack of critical thought about what I call smearing, meaning taking one established fact and smearing it onto something that's an adjacent fact where it doesn't actually apply. So, yeah, for example, yeah using PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, for short periods of time for healing ulcers and erosions is hugely beneficial. You just mm -hmm. don't do it for six months or a year. Okay. Yeah. You get it done and you go and you, ta and you taper it off. And taper off. Yeah. And so the taper off part is what's so difficult. It, you're, what I have seen is patients um, quickly get very, very dependent. Once they're on it for even a few months, they it is difficult, very difficult. They can barely get off. They get such severe acid reflux when they start tapering, more so than before they'd even started. Right. Um, so you taper them, you use H2 blockers. That's what I do. Yeah. It's, it's that's what possible. I do. Yeah. And then I tell them it's going to be rough. I tell them it's going to be rough, but you got to do it. And so I use H2 blockers and, you know, of course, all of the uh, uh, hygiene recommendations with regard to uh, acid reflux um, reduction mechanisms sit up, don't eat late at night, eat smaller meals, you know, all of those things. But yeah, it, it does take a taper and it does take reducing and using an H2 blocker. And usually those are people who may have helicobacter colonization, I assume. Is that a routine part that you test for in people? With the oh, it's always tested for when they go for a scope, pretty much. Um, you know, there are some um, stool tests that I can use to check for it. But you are right. Helicobacter pylori does play a role in that problem. Yeah. I know it's something that I've studied in regard to pancreatic cancer and has some, has some fascinating mm. results. But that's why it's always present in my mind. It was, the, you know, the the it wasn't um anxiety and nervous tension working eight hour jobs that was giving people ulcers it was helicobacter that yeah. uh, was the cause of that and once we learned that we had to figure out how to eradicate it and that again uses ppis plus bismuth plus, plus antibiotics antibiotics and so on, yeah right Mm -hmm. so yeah what um, was that what do you remember what year that was i'm thinking like maybe like 2000 19 1999 2000 something like that i can remember when we first learned that yeah it it, it was it's it, one you know it, it's really interesting you think that we've discovered almost everything there is to know about medicine and then these things like like that occurs that's just so revolutionary in mm -hmm. medical thought, you wonder, why didn't we ever know this earlier? This is something so yes. obvious. Why did we not know that there's this major bacterium that colonizes 65 or 75% of people in South America and, and Asia and 35 to 40% of Americans and Europeans and so on? How did we not know that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought when I when it first came out. That was my exact thought. How did we not know this? That's, that's true. Right, which makes me blame my professors, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I was that year. I, I think I was a pre-med student, I think is where no, I'd, I'd already, I'd already graduated from college, but I think I was shadowing a physician at the time. And I was avidly reading medical articles, preparing for medical school. So that's when I learned it. So uh, again, PPIs have usage, but you just have to define the usage and the considerations for it and not just blanket. Everybody can use this be just because they think they've got reflux and all mm -hmm. that. Yeah, exactly. That. So that, you know, they're over the counter right? and it's a problem because patients go and they think if it's over the counter, you know, they can just use it indefinitely. I know it says on the back of the bottle to only use for 14 days or consult your physician, right. but they don't care. It's interesting. I, you know, there are people who are like that. It says, well, if it's out here, I could use it ad lib. I could do whatever I want. And there are other people who says, well, this warning is actually there for a reason. And I know that most over-the-counter medications are the same as, as prescription, prescription medications, only at half the dose. So it's safe to double the dose. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that is true. That, you know, but, they do think that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's probably accurate that... Mm -hmm you know, that we've lived through three years of government paternalism telling us what we're supposed to behave, what we're supposed to know, what we're supposed to do, because we can't figure it out ourselves because they assume that, that the government knows everything. And, you know, the average Joe person in the, in the population may, you know, doesn't, but that doesn't account for that. We have a very intelligent, educated workforce today for large parts of the country, you know, just because you you do some kind of physical work for for your job doesn't mean you didn't go to college, didn't learn stuff, and and whatever. And there's lots of knowledge out there and judgment and common sense. And, well, what I you know, and this is what I've seen in my patients is, in fact, that population of educated patients is growing. They they distrust the medical system now, and so they feel like they need to take their health into their own hands. There, it's not this sort of reverential um, uh, treatment towards physicians anymore. They they don't they don't just automatically trust because a physician says it. They want to go and do their own research. At least this is the population that I have in my clinic, and that you know it may be it may be that the the ones that come to me are the ones that know that they don't want to go into mainstream medicine anyway. And I, and I know that that is true, but I also know that that population is growing. There are many, 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 many that just don't trust mainstream medicine anymore. They what, want to do amazing, their own research. What's amazing is you live in flyover country. You're yeah. right in the middle of, the, and you're not even that close to any major large cities in Missouri from what I can tell. And yeah, yet, I'm in the middle. I'm in Columbia, Missouri, and it's about 120,000 population, something yeah. like that. But yeah. my, my point is, that you're still seeing people who have educations, who have wisdom, who have common sense, who are able now with the tools of the internet to go figure out things for themselves. And so they come to you as consumers, not just patients. That is educated. absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. They come to me as consumers and they participate um, equally in their care. This is the way that I practice is discussions with my patients. You know, we work through what we feel like is best together. I give them all of the information. I give you, I give them the information that I need to educate, or excuse me, that they need and the education, you know, I pass it along to them with regard to the topic. But 
then they make a decision with me. And we decide, you know, are we going to do this testing or this lab? Are we going to do this supplement or not do this supplement? And, and we work it out. And I feel like it's a very satisfying way um, for the patient and physician, you know, to, to work together. So that works for you because you feel that you have enough time to be able to do that back and forth with the patient as needed, you mm -hmm. know, not on an eight minute schedule per patient and something like that. Oh, I used to do, I used to be that, you know, I used to have a, you know, 35, 40 patients in a day schedule. I worked for, you know, corporate, corporate hospital, corporate hospital chain. And, you know, I felt that pressure. I had to give more time to other patients and less time to, you know, to those that didn't, you know, have as, as pressing of needs, but it was a, it was a very stressful life. And, and that's not the way medicine needs to be done. Now in my clinic, since I've started my direct primary care clinic, it's just that that model is so much better for the patient and the physician. It's just so much better because I'm not pressed to see a patient and a visit in order to get compensation. It's a membership based model. And so, you know, what's beneficial for me is that the patient's healthy and they don't need me as much. And what's beneficial for the patient is for them to be healthy. So in this model, I'm not rewarded uh, when they're sick. So how do you work it? The patients pay a subscription fee, a membership yeah. fee for you. And yeah. then what about fees for actual visits and, and other activities? Tell no additional fees. So in my membership, which is a very reasonably priced membership, uh, uh, 45 to $65, depending on age group a month, um, it's included. Um, it includes medicine that's given in the in the um, in the clinic, it includes uh, biopsies, procedures, all office visits, phone calls, telehealth, messaging, essentially everything. That's amazing, and you can and you make a living off of that. I make a I make a really great living. I don't make as much as I made when I was part of this hospital system, but man, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, see, there you are. The, the satisfaction out of out of what you get from your patient interactions is worth a lot in terms of uh, what's meaningful to you in, in, in practicing medicine. Oh, yeah. My day-to-day -day life is full of joy, full of happy patients, full of happy. I have three employees, and they're just, they just are constantly discussing how great their days are. Their, their work life is so much better. They don't feel stress and pressure. They smile. We get along. We have a great time. Um, and patients come into my clinic and they talk about how peaceful it feels and how great they feel walking into my clinic. They don't have to wear a mask and, you know, they're not <laughs> pressured and pushed through like cows or cattle and, and they're, and they're appreciated. My patients are very appreciated. Well, I think you have your own personal unique skills of, of relating to people and, and that obviously comes through. Um, but the other thing is if you if those stresses are gone and you have the time to devote then you can you really develop relationships with your patients not just as numbers and and symptoms and so on to manage oh absolutely i consider them friends they consider me a friend and the relationship is what also produces healing when patients feel heard and understood and cared for it reduces their overall fear um and it reduces their um their worry about about the future. I mean, the future is just so um, unknown, and you know the stability in our society 
um, it, it, it's not, it's, it's not conducive to um, feeling like uh, that everything's just going to be okay. There's a lot of uncertainty and patients like to feel protected. And I, I do, I do feel like when they know they're in a relationship that they can just call me up or that I will give them a good answer, a straight answer, and that we can talk through problems that it helps reduce their anxiety. Well, that's really good. You know, we're living in a society run amok. Um, and part of the problem is we, I grew up at a time when I learned civics in school and they understood the concept of social contract which is that you can't legislate morals and good behavior. We have laws for things, but but generally people have to be cooperative and giving and trusting that other people will respond to them the same way. Once you have a society where everybody's entitled and thinks, if I do that, I'm the sucker because somebody else is taking advantage of me, you, you can't mm-hmm. do these kinds of practices of, of medicine. And a lot of things become tense in daily life rather than normal the way I experience it, you know, at younger ages. And I think maybe living in smaller communities still allows for that kind of social contract. And I think it's crucial for how we interact and go forward. And and the practice of medicine, you know, relates to that, I think, but just as another human interaction that happens daily or whenever that we need to be relating to people that way in, in a sense of trust rather than a sense of entitlement and this is oh, absolutely that, yeah that's made our society bad for where we're at now so we've reached another point where we have to take a break we're going to have a, a commercial and then we'll be back very soon so please stay tuned americaoutloud.com if you can't find it here you can't find it anywhere We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. Welcome back. This is Dr. Harvey Rich with Dr. Heather Gessling. We were just talking about kind of social interactions in the practice of medicine. Um, one thing I wanted to turn to it, with you, Heather, is, is how um, you relate your practice, your personal practice, to your involvement in the, the wellness company. 
you spend mm -hmm. a, a good amount of, of effort, as I've seen, you know, in helping the things medical in the wellness company and, and the the medical uh, yeah. activities and, and so on. And that probably occupies a good chunk of your time from what I can tell. Yeah. So I feel like my experience um, with direct primary care, as well as my experience where I was chief of staff of my hospital for six years and managed uh, the, the physicians there, both of those combined, I feel like have provided a skill set that helps me be the the sort of medical practice coordinator for the wellness company for our telehealth side of things also to help with, you know, making sure that we're doing things correctly when it comes to our supplement line and, and that we're using a science science based um, uh, decision making. Also, we have Dr. Richard Ammerling who helps with that process. And we have Dr. Peter McCullough, but yeah, as well as you, Harvey, but I feel like the, the direct primary care model is, is a good, um, is a, is, is the way forward to help with the problem that we see in medicine right now. Medicine is based off of patient patients being sick. Uh, revenue is generated when pa patients are sick. And so our goal is to provide good comprehensive care to help keep patients well. And this model is a completely different model. The direct um, direct primary care, or direct patient care model is a, is a health um, and wellness model, not a sick care model. So, but it, it really is a, a form of individual kind of insurance. If you're paying whatever, 50 or $60 a month, say, for your wellness, and you use it when you need it, and hope you don't, but sometimes you do anyway, you're basically mm -hmm. self-insuring over the course of time. You're averaging your, your medical needs and services over time instead yes. of... Uh, That's uh, right. Instead of averaging over people, the insurance companies average over people. Mm -hmm. and this model averages each person over time. Yeah. And this is a concept that patients have to sort of, you know, shift their thinking to. They don't quite get it. They're still in that sort of pay for service or pay per visit mindset of when I'm sick, I'll pay the doctor. However, it just doesn't work as well. The, the model that um, I now practice in is amazing. It, it truly does help patients stay well. Whenever you have longer visits and more accessible care, patients end up using the system less. So, you know, what's interesting is um, I realized in my kids growing up as young adults and so on, that there's two real parts of medical care. There's your average everyday chronic disease and, and wellness kind of care. That's what we're talking about. And then there's your catastrophic care, which is what covers you if you have an accident or you suddenly yeah. have a chronic, a serious chronic illness, you need surgery, something like yeah. that. And these yeah. are, should not be smeared together, should not be lumped together. That well, I actually, I think that they should be used in combination with each other. Um it's the, I feel like it's the most efficient way 
to have healthcare coverage. I also feel like it's probably the cheapest way. In our clinic, we do offer through a, another company, we do offer that catastrophic coverage so they can use me and have me to take care of most of their medical needs at a very low, low cost. And then they have this catastrophic coverage on top of that in case they need hospital care. Right. So, but they could be purchased separately, for example, even, yes. though, they, even though they might share you as a provider, mm -hmm. they could be covered separately. And, yes. and the, the idea for that is it gives more competition for your everyday primary care. Instead of being locked into a major insurance plan where they dictate who your 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 providers are or the network of providers or something like that, you can kind of pick anybody you want offering your kind of uh, wellness care. And, oh yeah, and do that, and then you know use an insurance company or some other format for covering your your comprehensive care and in fact yeah. young adults think that they're invulnerable invulnerable to everything and don't need everyday primary care and will just buy should just buy comprehensive care which is part of uh, obamacare in the first place is that young adults think they don't need comprehensive you know emergency care or whatever because they're invulnerable and so they don't want to buy any care but they, mm -hmm. but you know, society is not going to take care of them if they get into an accident, and they can't expect yeah. that. So they need to have the the. They need the, to have coverage. The yeah. coverage. Catastroph catastrophic coverage, at right. least. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and what you're talking about, uh, the the daily kinds of of outpatient and primary care is by and large a low cost endeavor. Yes. It's it's yeah. not so cost intensive for most patients, most people that that's why I think that this, when people started thinking about this and pulling the insurance considerations apart and realizing that this model is very effective and, and good for people and probably mm -hmm. better than the insurance company model, you know, for, for regular everyday care. I think that, that, you know, it's, this is just another evolution in thinking where we stop being brainwashed by corporate America, so to speak. Oh yeah. I mean, the whole model is, is a mess. The whole model is a mess. And, and at the wellness company, we see that we want to offer a different system to patients. And actually in approximately a week, um, we're going to be offering an amazing new innovative type of membership. And it's going to provide unlimited care, unlimited care through our virtual, through our virtual telehealth or our um, telemedicine arm and it's also going to provide unlimited supplements to the patient we're super excited about this so when it's unlimited you mean they can have one of uh, a month's supply of anything per month anything of, that, of any one selling. of our supplements uh-huh right. per person right i know per i think person. i think that that's really good that um it's going to focus less on on buying products and more on on creating a regimen of what works for you that's good and yes leaving the yes. cost at a, at, a, at a fixed level that, it, it you know, it may or may not work for some people, people who are in very good health, who don't need uh, a lot of, of, of medical visits, who, you know, who might not, it might not be cost effective, but people who, you know, are more middle-aged and older who have chronic conditions that they need follow-up and monitoring and so on, and are taking more supplements, those people, I think it may be very cost-effective for yeah, so I think 
Um, and we are going to expand quite rapidly over the next few months into being able, being able to provide um, more primary care, help with chronic um, conditions, more full service primary care. But I also, um, to go back to what you had just said, I think it can be very cost effective for either arm, for those who are using the telehealth arm more, or for those who are using the supplements more, I think either way, it's going to be cost effective. Now, um, right now, we're also in the middle of dealing with the after effects of the massive scale of vaccination in the country and the prolonged um, exposure to spike proteins in, in body tissues and organs of the body, mm -hmm. where people might not be, I mean, there's some people, a lot of people who, who've been chronically debilitated because of the spike protein toxicity, but I suspect that there's an even larger group of people who just don't feel quite as good as they did because of this and haven't mm -hmm. figured out or, or worked out that they might be able to ameliorate that also. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, we have a range of, of supplements. I, in fact, I even suggested another one to um, you guys recently to start thinking about that in, involve what I would call laboratory evidence of taking apart the spike protein. And not sure yet that we have empirical evidence in people, but uh, optimism to think that it will help. So have you been using the, the for example, the natokinase supplements? And, and yeah, so, so recent article in December, you know, showing evidence of the in vitro degradation of the spike protein. And then also um, there is uh, evidence that dandelion root can help prevent um, attachment of the spike to the receptor. And that's from, I think, a November 21 article. Um, and so our spike supplement has both of those products in it. It also has selenium, black cumin seed. It also has uh, Irish sea moss and it also has um, green tea extract. All of those things were put together in a formula that we, um, worked on last year before we even knew the the new amazing evidence regarding natokinase. We put that natokinase in it because we knew that natokinase has lots of evidence showing that it helps break down fibrin clots, prevent and break down fibrin clots. And so because of the spike protein um, or inflammatory process, um, we know that patients that have had COVID, long COVID, or the or the um, injection, they develop clots. And so we have that in there, but now we know it has even more effectiveness against spike with degradation of the protein. So from my point of view, I can uh, believe that from the lab evidence, my concern is that natokinase also has effects on platelets and clotting. And so, it, so it turns out that the side effects is, are, are really... They're not, it doesn't pan out. Natokinase doesn't really contribute to increased bleeding risk. It doesn't. So that, mm -hmm. that's good to know. Um, the, the laboratory studies seem to show at least those kind of uh, biochemical level uh, results. But like I said, there are, are things that you study in the lab and in animals that just don't translate the same way into people. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, if you're on already on a blood thinner, you might want to use caution in using natokinase. But in general, 
it's a very, it seems to be very safe and doesn't increase blood um, uh, bleeding risk. So you haven't had, I mean, are, are you using it in your practice outside of the wellness company? Yeah, I've used it in my practice. Also, what I've seen is patients, and, and this is this is what I've observed. And so I don't really know what um, other physicians are seeing, but patients who have had clots associated with COVID, man, the clots seem to be more stubborn and even I've even seen them be um, recurrent. And I don't know if it's because of a long, long haul COVID issue that's not easily recognized, but I've had patients on, you know, the typical oral agents, Xarelto or Eliquis. And then I've had to, I've had to add in natto kinase on top of that, just because of sort of the stubbornness of these things or the recurrent nature so I, I've ha- I've I've done them combined, and I'm not seeing bleeding risks. And and I'm not saying that this is a large number of patients, you know, less than a handful that I'm talking about. But they're not bleeding. Well, that's good to know. Um, I mean, it is over the counter, and so people could choose to to buy this on their own rather, yeah. you know, than taking a medical advice over it. But I also don't see the, the the FDA has come in and said, oh, this is a big risk and we're going to have to remove it from the market and whatever or make it prescription only because people are bleeding to death over this. Well, well that's a good point. I also hope that they leave it over the counter. I hope that they don't put a, some regulation because it works well. This is my other concern on the flip side of things. Um, and so... Yeah, so natokinase is a proteolytic. It's a it's a proteolytic enzyme. It, it will degrade protein. Um, there's also other supplements out there that are similar. Lumbrokinase. Lumbrokinase is more potent than natokinase. I usually recommend using natokinase, but there's combination um, uh, supplements out there that use both. In our supplement, the spike support supplement, we prefer to use natokinase and the, in the fibrinolytic units, um, then the milligrams slash fibrinolytic unit dose is a really good dose. We see that that's the effective dose. So given that these are proteins, how do they not get disassembled in the, in the stomach and the gut before being absorbed? uh, Are you talking about, are you talking about natokinase as an enzyme or spike protein as the no, the natokinase is as an enzyme. I'm it's an enzyme. Some yes. of it gets absorbed, but not as much because most of it gets taken apart by pancreatic enzymes. Yeah, I I don't know the I don't know the answer to that. So as an enzyme, but it's not necessarily. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Harvey. I'm not sure on that. That was the dogma that I learned that you can't give protein hormones and protein enzymes by orally because they get mostly taken apart. Now, of course, I'm beginning to question all the dogmas that I learned in medical school. Exactly. Um, So, yeah, you have to wonder, was there other reasons they were saying these things? You know, whenever I was in medical school, they said, oh, you know, vitamins just create expensive urine or, you know, (laughs) you know, that type of thing, you know, very belittling to any type of supplementation. We it was it was we were basically told that it was it was just a expensive, you know, waste of, waste of your time and money. But 
I, they think I don't, people I, have good diets that that everything would come in the diet. That's what we were told. That's exactly what we were told. And that's and we just I just firmly believe that our diets, our American diets, do not have the the nutrients that they had in them decades ago. I feel like our, our soil is probably not providing the right amount of nutrients. It's it's depleted. Uh, non-organic products have, uh, lack digestive enzymes in them that help with absorption of nutrients. And so there's a host of factors that have uh, contributed to much less nutrients in our food, minerals in our food. Hmm. That's interesting and depressing all at the same time. Um, <laughs> but at least if we've identified what the things are of importance, we have a way of approaching it from a knowledge base that we could use. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. Um, anything else? I mean, I'm very excited about our wellness company. Uh, we're just yeah. really just taking off. But I think that there and not to say that we're the only telemedicine company or we're the only supplements company or that we're the only combined such company. But there's a, a great thirst, I think, in America for returning to individualized care and, and not... Yes. Uh, you know, guidelines care. The hospital says I can give you this and I can't give you that medication kind of care. Um, yeah. You know, I, the, the, people are desperate to get good medical care and not to be just left in their house until they can't breathe. Yeah. And also care that doesn't involve incentivization of the physicians to do certain things that the insurance right. wants right. you to do. I mean, I feel like that that's crucial. I want a physician to be making, be making a decision um, for a patient based off of what's right for the patient, not what the insurance is, is sort of forcing down their throat. Right. Well, we're really out of time already. And uh, I'd really love to consider, continue this discussion with you. We'll have to do it another time. So I yeah. hope all of our listeners enjoyed our discussion. And if you have questions for me, please submit them at americaoutloud.com slash pulse. Heather, thank you very much. These were really interesting discussions. Thanks, Harvey. Everybody, if you're listening, please come back next week.